Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing, man? I'm great. How are you, Randy? I'm doing fabulous. We are almost breaking through here to some warm weather in Seattle. I know you got to be experiencing that in Portland as well, but I'm so hungry for some sun. Yes. Well, it's been raining. It rained all the weekend, and now it's been raining for the last, uh, just today, I guess, and uh, have not been enjoying it very much. But no. it's supposed to be in the 80s, I believe, on Thursday, and then be sunny for the rest of the weekend. Yes, that's what I saw, too. So I'm super excited. That means outdoor jam time. So Yeah, I can't wait. Maybe, maybe a beach jam. Seaside mm. is calling to me. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's a little bit far of a drive for me to Seaside, but I will, I will uh, be envious. I'll, I'll guide us for you if I end up there. <laughs> no, do not guide us. Flawed. <laughs> Fla- flawed for you. Okay. Yes, I will. So yes, so I'm really excited. This is episode number two with Deaton, and we're going to learn a lot more about uh, his relationship with um, Jim Schmall and then his relationship with Pat Carrasco. So uh, everyone cool. will enjoy. I wanted to ask, um, so what happened after that, that last competition with Jim Schmall? Uh, basically, burnout, I think. Um, so we're from Louisiana, and, you know, it was very difficult to make uh, inroads in, into the competitive scene when we were first coming into it. It was back in that day, and it seems like I think now everybody is a lot more giving, and I don't know, at least that's what it comes off to me on social media. Uh, I'm not there at the tournaments, but a lot of the players, especially U.S., are older and more mellow, but it was just, um, it was very clickish, and you go to tournaments, and there's the people that are judging are their players that were eliminated, and they're mostly from the East Coast and the West Coast, and there's nobody from the deep South. So it was very difficult uh, to begin with. But anyway, I got off on a tangent there. I apologize. But Jim moved to San Diego, which, uh, believe it or not, and this should not even matter, but as far as a political move, and you guys probably know what I'm talking about, it was probably about the, the best thing that could have happened to us. And then Jim's game exploded after that. I mean – he was uh, kind of long and lean, and it took him, you know, a while to kind of get his moves going. And then I don't know, just all of a sudden, his he got his man muscles and the fast twitch nerve fibers, and Jim became what you saw. So anyway, so what year was that? that? Were you talking about when Jim moved to San Diego? Yeah, he moved in the fall of 1984, right after we had uh, Jim and I won the WRNO Open. It was at the World's Fair. Jim and Peter were in each of their, their respective vehicles. After the tournament, we went and ate at Louis Cafe, this Baton Rouge establishment. Uh, Pat Carrasco, we were living in the same apartment complex, walks down and give, has this little homemade box, you know, has parting gifts for Jim, which was hilarious. Pat has this really, really sick sense of humor. So, you know, it was just little miscellaneous worthless trinkets that he had thrown together that would have some kind of silly significance. So, uh, they leave from my apartment with just the belongings that can fit into Jim's little Volkswagen and Peter's Honda Civic, and they followed each other out to California. 
and Jim landed. I think he roomed with Rick LeBeau when he first got there, and uh, Peter was a little more financially sound at that time and got an apartment in Pacific Beach. So uh, that's when both of those guys went to San Diego. So that happened in the middle of your run. So yeah. I always it thought happened that... in the middle of our run. So Jim and I had a long distance relationship. Yeah, no kidding. Uh-huh. I always thought, yeah, you know, I always thought Jim was in Baton Rouge the whole time. So I didn't never. He that. never lived in Baton Rouge. He lived in New Orleans. Well, he was from Shreveport, and then for a short time after he graduated from Loyola with honors, of course, and he moved back to his parents' house in Shreveport when he was kind of figuring out what exactly what he was going to do and what he was going to do was be a professional frisbee player. Um, you know, and I think he ended up going to a uh, graphic art school down there during the frisbee run. And, you know, we, we went to South Africa in the, actually the winter of 1984. So it's summertime in South Africa and they paid us $150 a day for 26 straight days wouldn't let us pay for anything and boy those people could party in south africa let me tell you it was it was a blast so that's good money for uh you know young frisbee players so that kind of kind of set us up for a while but jim was living in san diego oh no i take it back i know where jim landed he moved in with Lairbs. there was a bunch of uh frisbee players moving from all over the country to san diego about this time so Lairbs had a house that had stacy rick Jim Schmall and himself. So that was the Frisbee house there for a while. And before we went to South Africa, I flew out to San Diego and stayed in Larab's house with these guys. And, you know, we jammed a ton. And then Jim and I got on a plane and went across the country. The only time I've ever been in New York was in the airport on the way to South Africa. And then again, on the way back. So, uh, yeah, so Jim and I have a long distance relationship, but I'm, you know, I am... I don't have a job. What I'm doing is playing Frisbee, and we're doing gigs. We're actually making a little money in tournaments. If you have to do odd jobs to get you through the the hard times, that's what you do. But we played Frisbee all the time, and you know, I would spend a lot of time in San Diego, and then Jim and I would meet up for a tournament in Austin or San Antonio or wherever, or I would fly out to San Diego, and then I would – or drive in my little red truck. Like in 85, I drove with Getty. Getty was a guy riding shotgun, and I met up with Jim, and we did the whole circuit of tournaments. We started the U.S. Open. There's usually a beach tournament out there. Uh, Next place, Colorado. There's usually a tournament in Boulder and Fort Collins. Go to Minneapolis, back down to Austin. And this is back when there was an actual kind of a tour, an FPA tour, and they had money at the event. So this is when Jim Jim and I, in this run, from the 1983 World FBA World Championships, when we won our first one, until the routine in 1986, which was the last one we ever played in, there was only one tournament that we did not finish first. We finished third in Fort Collins in 1984. Joey and Lairbs won, and Skippy and Doug Brannigan were second. And that was it. So... And this was at a time where we were depending on this prize money. And I know now a lot of times it's like uh, you're going to go and you're going to play with other people because it's fun. I know, you know, Jake, um, you know, if you and your brother, if you just really wanted to maximize, you probably 
would play every tournament together, but I've seen, you know, tournaments where Matt was playing with James and you're playing with Arthur and you guys are playing with lots of other people because the money is not the main thing. You got guys have jobs and there's not a whole lot of money and you're doing it for the love of the sport. But back when we were doing it, we had to win to keep on going. So uh, that's what we did. So at the end of the tournament in 86, it wasn't a conscious decision, but both of us were probably just burnt. So from 82 to 86 was really, that was my, or I take that back, 81 to 86. and 81, we were, you know, just kind of getting our feet wet. That was really my competitive career. After that, I dabbled in this or that. And I was lucky enough to um, play with Gina in Santa Cruz in 94. And we won uh, the FPA mix. But basically, Gina carried me. That's when she was peeking out. Uh, she, you know, you know what an incredible player she is. So um, not a conscious decision, but in 87, when I went to the U.S. Open, it just, it wasn't there. You know, we were playing with Peter and Jim and I had both mentally checked out. And uh, the previous U.S. Opens, we had finished second in 83, 84, 85. We won it in 86. And then in 87, we finished fifth. We, it was like Frisbee Hill. It's just like this routine. If it shows up on, it, it's on the internet and I want it to be like a race. <laughs> it's one that you wish that, you know, you're like, oh, please, somebody just, just, just get rid of this, get all copies, you know, and get rid of them. But we had just like checked out. Then I became an ultimate player. Then I kept freestyle and freestyle and just, and then freestyle became fun because I didn't, I didn't play in tournaments or if I played in a tournament, I'd meet Bob Coleman at the Texas States and, you know, Bob Coleman and I played or in 89, Daryl Allen and I went over to this event in Austin and, you know, we hadn't I'd played like two tournaments in two years or three years. And, uh, Donnie was there playing with Camilla and Bob and Dave were there. And this is when Dave Schiller was really, really getting good. And they had Steve Haynes and, uh, Tristan Dozier. He was Russ Dozier at the time. Another guy that, uh, changed his name. Anyway, a lot Great of good player. players. Alan Elliott was there. I, you know, I could go on and on. Um, and Daryl and I won the tournament. It was awesome. And it's in Austin. So there's prize money. So it was, you know. But really, I wasn't playing competitively. I just was playing a ton of ultimate. Um, Daryl and Getty and I kind of mercenary there in the late 80s. And uh, we got a team of guys from all over the South. And we were pretty competitive uh, at most of the tournaments. We never made nationals, but we would go to regionals. And we would make noise. And we would play the big boys close and always kind of seem to just you know, fall a little short, but it was a blast, you know, playing ultimate. That's another yeah. great love in Frisbee. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to, you know, that during your kind of time and your run was really when I had checked out, like I checked out in like 81 and didn't mm-hmm. come back to freestyle till maybe 88, I think. So that our paths didn't really cross at all. Not until, until much later. I remember much later on. meeting you. And having a great, we've always, I don't think you and I have ever had a bad jam. So uh, no, I remember yeah. meeting you in 1993 when I, it was the first time in years I'd gone to the FBA Worlds and I played with Alan Elliott and John Houck and I was playing, I had no anterior cruciate ligament in my right knee because uh, I didn't have health insurance. <laughs> you know, that was in Seattle and um, that's where I really met you. Jake was in uh, 2002 at Manresa, Tommy's tournament. And I remember uh, having just this really good jam 
with Jake and Dave Lewis. Uh, so, Jake, <laughs> I do believe that's the last time I've seen you is uh, Manresa 2002. I think that's correct. I think that's wow, correct. 14 years. Been a while. Yeah, so, uh, Dean, what's the story behind Pat Carrasco not competing and yet being one of the most consistent and best jammers in the world? Um, well, he really has, after he stopped really playing and playing with me and Daryl, he really didn't have any interest in competing. Um, now, there is a story going around out there. The 1982 FBA tournament in Kansas City, uh, and that was the first FBA pairs tournament that Jim and I won, but we played the three-way with Pat Carrasco, and I actually begged him to come play with us. Daryl wasn't available. We hadn't really started playing with Daryl yet, me and Jim, and uh, Jim and Pat and I had a history. We had played an FBA meet in 81 in the summer, and so we played co-op up there, and I actually paid his way to go. I had a little extra money at this time, so he's like, Sure. And uh, he played pairs with Crazy John Brooks. And, um, you know, we played really well in the three-way, very, very competitive uh, final. But um, he was really into ballet. and He would do, like, ballet moves between uh, the moves. Uh, during the semis, uh, he and John played pretty well. And Donnie said he shouldn't be doing things between the moves. Uh, so Donnie gave him a 0.01 artistic presentation. I think that's probably the lowest score ever given. Um, and a lot of people mistakenly think that this is what soured Pat Carrasco on competition. And I will tell you, it basically has zero to do with why Pat doesn't compete. It's like he has no interest in competing. He has interest in jamming. And uh, so now we'll get to the legend of Pat Carrasco. So you know how we kind of started early, and Pat and I became real good friends. And we were playing in tournaments, smaller tournaments to begin with, and then some FPA events. And then he just goes off and does his ballet thing. And Pat comes from a family of nine kids. He's the second youngest. And when you're 18, you get booted out. Um, and a lot of people don't know this about Pat. Uh, Pat was a high school dropout. And he got his GED. And then he got um, grants and loans and worked and put himself through LSU, got an engineering degree, and uh, Pat's been retired for about a year now. He, he's a pretty extraordinary individual, much like all of the guys that I've spoken about that are you know, my best friends, Daryl and uh, Getty and Pat and Jim, just, just amazing people. Um, not just as frisbee players, just but in accomplishments in in life. So um, okay, so Pat uh, after '82, he's very involved with uh, school. He's getting his engineering degree, and he never quit playing completely. And we did we did a lot of other stuff. We got really really into mountain biking, and uh, you know we were going to the gym and doing weightlifting stuff. And you know Pat and I remained just you know, the best of friends. Jamming never completely was out with Pat. He always kind of had it around and it may, he may not play. Sometimes he'd play more consistently. And then other times we might go a couple of months without, uh, 
jamming with each other, but there was just other people to play with around. So, uh, and then around 1992, and Pat was working as an engineer, and I was a health club manager. We met one Friday afternoon, tried to get off work a little bit early, and had a really good jam. And then all of a sudden, it was like every Friday. That became what we did. We met every Friday at Highland Road Park, and we would jam. And then we would start playing on Sundays, too. So every Friday, every Sunday, we would play Frisbee. And this is 92, and right around 94, and this was after I finally got um, my ACL reconstructed, and I was kind of on the shelf, and I'd go out there and I'd throw to them and limp around and try to retake ownership of my knee. I just really, really started to blossom, and he uh, he was always a really good player and really smooth. Um, I don't know if you've seen videos of Pat. I have some that I could, uh, you know, link you to that he'd gotten real big. Like at one time he was 228 pounds and he just started to get leaner and quicker. And then he just started doing moves that you were like, kind of shook your head and went, wait, hold on just a second. What? What? And I don't know, it, it just kind of exploded. The dude is just unbelievable, and he's mostly, I, would, I won't say self-taught, because we were, Jim and I were, and Daryl were bringing back moves, because we were, we were traveling a little bit when he was at LSU, and, you know, and he would kind of see what we're doing, and he had seen stuff in the early 80s, but a lot of his game is just stuff that he just came up with on his own like his knee brush into you know double spinning whatever reverse guidance jumping guidance squad scarecrow and then basically um he started playing more of a win game after mikey reed came through town in uh 94 during his uh school assembly shows he was doing this was uh really when we became really good friends with mikey and mikey is you know another one of our brothers and great, great friends. And uh, Mikey was playing with a sky style. And so we were still playing with the, the high ridge. And after Mikey came through town, Pat said, uh-uh, we're playing with sky stylers from now on. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that's what, uh, yeah. And so there we are. We're playing with a sky styler. And Pat is always like to um, modify, I guess, would be the best word. You guys have played with his disc that he uh, – yeah, the, the gnarled up, the uh, the scored up. Now, I like a disc that's kind of been maybe seen a little bit of concrete to get a little grip and maybe help your rolls. But Pat goes full-on uh, fur, I guess is the best way you could call it, or gnarled. So I, actually, the first time I met Pat, he threw me the disc, and it like hurt my hand because it was so scored. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, why do you guys score the disc like that when you play with it? I'm sorry I chuckled at your pain, but a lot of people have uh, felt that when they tried to do a guide. In the summertime in South Louisiana, it is routinely 95 degrees with 95% humidity, and you basically are sweating buckets. And if you have a disc that's straight out of the package and you go to do a chest roll, it's just going to slide off your body. Um, so that's kind of the evolution of the, the gnarl or the fur. Um, I probably would prefer a, not quite aggressive <laughs> as Pat. 
Um, but he really likes to play with his own disc and, you know, I'm pretty laid back. So most of the time we play with his disc and then every once in a while I'll pull one out and I try to, uh, score it up, um, sufficiently, but it's, you know, Pat generally at some point will go back to his disc and throw it to me while kind of throwing mine to the side. But, uh, it was rooted in a, you know, actual need to have some traction on the outside of the disc. He just took it to an, an extreme. So that was the, uh, that was the beginning of the fur. So yeah, a lot of people yeah. when are, are not real pleased with it, especially if they like to do angle changes and guides and, you know, it's not going to happen right. with that disc, but your, your chest rolls and back rolls and power brushes are going to be fantastic. Yep. So obviously you're still playing these days, Deaton. So how has your game changed as you've gotten older and, and are there moves that you can no longer do and you, do, you make some adjustments now or? Had to. Well, um, don't want to go into it too heavily, but, um, I've had uh, five orthopedic surgeries, and four of them would be considered catastrophic. Both anterior cruciate ligaments, a completely ruptured Achilles tendon, a really bad torn meniscus. I've actually been advised by the LSU team physician to never run or jump again, which I didn't listen to him, of course. So um, I had to kind of put Frisbee away, just made a commitment to physical fitness and getting in really good shape and lo and behold i you know there was a time there where i really wasn't enjoying play it was just too many chronic injuries and i felt like my game sucked i don't know i put it to the side uh, as a matter of fact i didn't play for 15 full months and my comeback jam was a visit from dan yarnell uh out at the soccer complex and and kind of been going since then except for the little uh meniscus tear but yeah i've had to alter significantly i don't know if you uh see videos when i'm older like the double leg over behind the back delay james is always emailing me and asking me you know he's he's real close to to hitting that he's doing the double leg over behind the back pull and uh i don't do that anymore i don't think anybody does that anymore i think you're the only person i've seen do that so you, you uh, own a that. guy from Sweden that I think did it. It a uh, young man who I think is now deceased, Micah, that I saw in a Santa Barbara tournament, and I was like, "Whoa, oh, uh, Micah! That's right. Oh my God, he was an amazing player. He had when he oh, would spin, yeah. he, he would have his hands out in a way that I've never seen. It just looked beautiful. I mean, he was an amazing player. Oh yeah, just and I don't know the story. That's a tragedy. Just uh, yeah." Too many guys gone too early. Uh, did you know Pete Rosing at all? I did not. I I didn't uh, he, meet him either. Yeah, but you kind of know he played with Joey and Chip and Lairbs, and they actually won a world championship in uh, in co-op in '85. And uh, he just very very nice young man. Uh, moved to Santa Barbara because he wanted to get better at frisbee. He was from Chicago. Uh, died in a car crash. Yeah, that's Pete was such a great guy. Uh, yeah. Back to the Frisbee. Yeah, I've had to alter my game, but I got to tell you, go to the gym every day. Uh, I work on flexibility every day, and it, I'm trying to maintain some of the old Bayou Blaster moves uh, within, within reason, and uh, I'm going to play as long as I can just because I just think it's Frisbee freestyle to me, and I've done a lot of sports and a lot of athletic-type activities. It's just the most fun and it's the best workout 
if you think about it, I mean, you can go to the gym in two and a half hours, just be totally focused and go from one thing to the next, an hour on the stationary bike and then weights and then work core and then hit stretching and you'll feel it. But if you do two and a half hours of jamming hardcore, the next day you're like wrecked. I mean, there's no comparison. So as far as a physical fitness activity, one that keeps your mind sharp, your body sharp, and it's a blast to do, and, you know, of course, it's pretty fun when, you know, you're out at the soccer complex, and these guys that are, you know, a third of your age are like, oh, my goodness, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, so, you know. Freestyle is uh, definitely the fountain of youth. Yeah, I think you're right about it being a good exercise for another reason, which is a lot of people find it hard to exercise for the sake of exercising, but freestyle is just fun. There is no exercise for the sake of it involved you're just out there to have fun and enjoy yourself and when you're done you realize oh this was actually really challenging for my body i got a good workout but that wasn't my intent yeah three hours will go by and you'll go like wow where did those three hours go we always have really good cold hoppy beverages ready for the post jam as a matter of fact sometimes at the hour and a half or two hour mark we'll pop one and chill and then get back up and kind of ease into it slow and get a lather back up in the last hour can be you know magical uh after the second beer i'm pretty much done now <laughs> yeah there's no doubt that frisbee is great exercise and it's you know that time just goes and you don't even know that two three hours it is that meditative experience for sure and uh having a second beer is definitely a sign that the jam is over no doubt about it yeah, it's drunken jamming <laughs> too much beer can't jam anymore <laughs> uh, that is not an option <laughs> It's fun. So anyhow, I just wanted to say thank you to all the folks who have donated so far. And uh, please keep donating and also go like the Facebook page. Uh, that really helps us keep the lights on around here. So thanks. All right, Jake. We'll talk to you next time. Yep. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, Check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville.